This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Bakari Kuliwali. This month, we're focusing on renewable energy. Fossil fuels are dwindling and access to power is already a scarcity in Africa. But people are now turning to renewable energy technologies. Access to energy is one of the essential conditions for development. However, the African continent is still lagging behind in terms of access to power, both in rural and urban areas. While the fight against poverty remains the priority for the continent, it suffers from a lack of investment that often condenses to the use of conventional energy, from traditional biomass to fossil fuel. But the African continent offers a significant renewable energy potential, and the development of these energy sources would allow freedom from fossil fuel dependency. In podcast 35, we'll first talk with energy specialist Dan Martin to learn about these technologies and how these are incorporated into projects. We'll also talk to a farmer to learn more about the reality of renewable energies on the ground. Also in episode 35, we continue to look at nutrition. We talk with Dr. Roba about food security this time in Kenya. Also, in this episode, we hear from two more agribusiness hub experts about how these hubs are equipping young people with the business and technical skills necessary for the green agriculture sector. And we also get an update on one of our projects on the front line of the climate crisis in the Solomon Islands. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Bakari Kulibari in Dakar. With me is Brian Thompson in Rome. Renewable energy is necessary for sustaining our planet. But what exactly renewable energy and why is it so important? We spoke with Dan Martin to learn a little more about what IFAD is doing to support renewable energy in Africa. Dan is an engineer who works as an energy and climate resilience infrastructure specialist. Listen as he answers our first and most pressing question. What is renewable energy? Essentially, renewable energy is any source uh, that is replenishable and replenishable at a, at a higher rate than it's consumed. So sustainable, uh, it's, it's clean, uh, it's non-greenhouse gas emitting um, like you would normally see from, from fossil fuels. Um, so it's something that's environmentally friendly and, and, uh, and, and sustainable in the long term. What are some of the benefits of using these technologies in Africa, both for the countries and the continent and for farmers and households? Well, I mean, as you know, at the moment, we have a climate crisis, we have food security issues. And basically what IFAD is trying to do through, through our renewable energy program, uh, essentially, is, is, um, is increase that agricultural productivity um, through you know, more energy smart uh, agricultural uh, practices. And at the same time, decarbonizing that food chain. Um, so it's, uh, it, it, it has a huge cross-cutting impact um, on, on the smallholders and, and the rural poor that we, that we work for. It's, 
you know, if you if you if you can just imagine, you know, there's um, there's 570 million people in sub-Saharan Africa uh, without electricity, um, and that is, uh, you know, it's a it's a, it's a frightening statistic. Even more so, you know, based on uh, some of the SDG seven tracking data that we use, that's actually gone up from around 556 million in 2010. So you know, things are getting worse, and that access to energy. Uh, you know, it has impact on people's livelihoods, which is one of the things that we look at through productive uses of energy, uh, and also people's well-being. Uh, if you if you if you're going out and collecting wood <clears throat> every day, and you're burning uh, you're burning um, charcoal uh, to cook, uh, you know, these are your basic energy needs. That has an impact uh, on your health. It has an impact on your time going out and collecting wood and char. Um, so it's 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 cross-cutting all over, as well as well as sort of uh, the advantages of, um, of things like <clears throat> providing light uh, in educational facilities and help in health centers. Uh, so there's all these sort of connecting factors too that that add on to you know, maybe we're providing renewable energy to a to a processing plant, but at the same time that's also potentially providing uh, to, to to communities and households. And what are some of the challenges that come with using these technologies? There's been a, I mean, up until recently, there's been a sort of idea that it's it's expensive and that there's sustainability issues. I mean, obviously, uh, there are there are costs associated with it. Um, and one of the things that IFAD is working on really hard is looking at, you know, access to finance as well. We tie that in with our programs to look at how we can help finance these technologies, um, particularly in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but as I said, things are actually getting you know a lot a lot cheaper, uh, so it's becoming more accessible. Um, but uh, sustainability is also an issue. So, you know, you have to consider when you're installing these uh, various uh, technologies and doing these activities that these things have to run in the long term. So there's a training component, there's an operating component, there's a supply chain component. Um, so obviously this all has to be uh, factored into the design of what you're doing. So it's very important that those interventions are you know, really well designed and, and fit for purpose. Can you tell me about some of the projects that EFAD has that incorporates renewable energy? Yeah, I mean, I'm very recently back from from Rwanda, uh, where we've been working with a, a fantastic company called Sundanza. Uh, it's a, a solar cooling based uh, project where we're working with fishers and and, and dairy uh, dairy cooperatives, um, giving them access to to mobile and uh, small scale and medium scale uh, solar chilling facilities, allowing them to, to, to keep their produce cold uh, for longer uh, using these solar refrigeration technologies and then giving them more opportunity to sell it uh, elsewhere, widen their market. Um, so we're working with those, uh, those dairy farmers and those, and those fishers and, and, and you know, growing it as well. So we're looking at the next stage right now, uh, which uh, includes actually mounting these solar refrigerators Onto almost like tricycles, so uh, so to get to give the uh, to give the the the, uh, the distributors the opportunity to take those uh, that that produce and sell it to a to a, to a wider market, and that's also got a nice sort of youth focus as well. So it's bringing in young people from their communities, giving them the opportunity to uh, to 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 generate income to improve their livelihood. Um, so it's a real nice sort of value addition to the work. And what other plans does EFAD have to incorporate renewable energy into future projects? There's enormous potential to to scale up renewable energy. Uh, it's something that you know. Okay, we've we've been working on on renewable energy now through ASAP Plus and through uh, through other programs. We're working on a lot of partnerships at the moment. We're speaking to the private sector. We're speaking to ARENA, which is the International Renewable Energy Agency. If had over the last couple of years, has 
launched something called the Reza approach, which is this renewable energy uh, for smallholder agriculture. But there's huge potential uh, for, for scale up as there's been scope for incorporating some sort of renewable energy component uh, into that work, um, whether it's, you know, through uh, crops, livestock, um, you know, it's or, or dairy, dairy, dairy value chains. It's, you know, it's really almost almost limitless. That was Dan Martin from IFAD talking to our reporter, Alison Lecce. Up next, we hear all about renewables from the private sector perspective. You're listening to Farms Food Future, episode 35, with me, Brian Thompson, in Rome, and Bakari Kulibali in Dakar. People in Africa are already making strides to solve the issue of energy scarcity. Adia Samba Ndaya is a farmer who also works as a coordinator for the Association for Territorial Development, or the APDT. The APDT is based in the Matam region of northern Senegal. It is a group of 300 people who are working to make agricultural products and services greener. Adia is in charge of the APDT's energy house. It holds a solar panel and an inventor that are an energy source for the market gardens and the house. Adia explained why the APDT and its members made the switch to renewable energy. My name is Adia Sambandiaye, coordinator of the Association for Territorial Development. Here we do market gardening and processing, and our water pump works thanks to solar energy. We use solar energy because here, at least 240 women from Cynthia Bamambe work 10 months a year on two market gardening areas covering five hectares. These women need the water from the borehole. We use solar panels and an inverter that works 24 hours a day to supply our well. We save money and make things profitable. For example, the electricity bill was extremely expensive for us. We used to pay a lot of money for mains electricity. But since the pump of the borehole started to work on solar energy, the borehole now can work all day long and it still saves us a lot of money. Previously, we used mains electricity. But then we noticed that we were paying a high price for it. That is why we decided to use mains electricity only for one part of the premises, while another part is powered by solar energy. With renewable energy, we pay less and we make our work profitable. If today we could power everything with solar energy, it would be great for us. For us today, the solution is solar energy. Other people are imitating us. For example, I have a friend who is a breeder with more than 800 cattle. I helped him to install a solar pump at his place, a few kilometers from our village. Now he has a well. Now he also has a well that supplies solar energy. Also, other people asking for help. Here in the Matam region, many people, especially in the private sector, want to use solar energy, but they do not have the access, but they do not have the means to access it. Many people who live along the river still use gasoline and gas oil to power their irrigation systems. If they could make everything work on solar energy, it would help them find solutions to the many problems of the region. Water is expensive and the electricity bill is also very expensive. 
We used to pay more than a million francs CFA. Now we pay five or six hundred thousand. As someone who uses solar energy, I know that solar energy is a solution for many farmers. That was Adia Sambanjai talking about renewable energy sources in Senegal. And if you want to hear more from us, please turn into any of our 35 podcasts and over 300 reports from across the world of farms, food, future. In episode 34, we focused on nutrition issues across Africa. And in episode 33, we looked at how building resilience can protect communities from shocks like COVID, climate change and conflict. In episode 32, we rifled through the world of insects as an alternative protein source for humans and livestock. Next month in episode 36, our focus turns to South Asia and how the climate crisis is affecting the region and what is being done to build resilience with guest presenter Yamini Loya. Up next, we hear from Joyce in Uganda. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in Rome and with me via Zoom is Bakari Kulabali in Dakar, Senegal. In Uganda, 90% of households use firewood and charcoal for cooking. This contributes to deforestation, soil erosion and loss of agriculture and grazing lands. And the impacts on livelihoods are great. In addition to the climate impact, firewood used in indoor cookstoves poses a threat to the people who use it. The indoor pollution can cause respiratory and eye infections and in some instances death. Joyce Asiro is a small-scale farmer from the Gulu district in northern Uganda. She used an energy-saving cookstove provided by a NIFAD-supported project known as Plenar. The project works to increase sustainable production in addition to building climate resilience of small-scale farmers. Linda Ojambo spoke to Joyce to understand why she chose the energy-saving cookstove, its benefits, and how it's changed her life and that of her family. I chose a renewable energy technology called Rorena Energy Saving Cook Stove because it uses the available resources to construct, for instance, anteal, banana stem, and grasses, which are not costly. And for that, I chose it because I use it for cooking for my family. Joyce, tell us some of the benefits of using the energy-saving cookstove. The benefits of using this technology is that it saves time in such a way that I take less time in cooking as a woman because there are two saucepan seats. One, I can use it for cooking food and one for mingling. That is why we name it Ojorungona because it absorbs a lot of heat. When you go far away to, um, to gossip, you find your food burned. And the second point is that it has reduced accident in children. Thirdly, it keeps the house clean because a lot of smoke goes out. Less smoke is not seen inside the house. Fourthly, it is cheap in terms of firewood because I can spend like uh, one firewood per day to make a meal. How has this changed your life and that of your family? It takes less time in preparing food because it gives me more time to do other things. For instance, I can go back to the garden and go and do 
my business at the market, which increased my income and that of my family. Um, secondly, it has changed because that improved the health of the family members. Because back then we used to cook with this local sauce, which produces a lot of smoke, and children could, could cough and even have brown eyes. Um, thirdly, it has improved on the health of my family because they can eat warm food. Even though they come late, they find that the energy technology, energy cooking technology has uh, absorbed a lot of heat inside there so the food can still be warm. That was Linda Ojambo talking to Joyce Asiro about the benefits of using an energy-saving cook stove for her and her family. Next up, we talk to Dr. Roba from the Jamil Observatory in Kenya. We are listening to Farms, Food, Future, Episode 35. I am Bakari Kulibali in Dakar with Brian Thompson in Rome. The Jamil Observatory is an organization working to reduce food security and malnutrition in East Africa. It does this through forecasting, long-term preparedness, and emergency response to climate-related food and health risk. It recently partnered with Oxfam and Save the Children on a report that highlights the world's repeated failure to stave off preventable famines. The report finds that today a person is likely to be dying of hunger every 48 seconds in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. Dr. Guia Roba is the head of the Jamil Observatory. He explained that severe water shortages and failed harvests are already hitting home in East Africa. And he says that some reports are indicating one and a half million head of cattle have been lost in the Horn of Africa alone. He also told us that around 81 million are facing food insecurity in East Africa, up from 60 million in the previous year. I asked Dr. Roba what should be done to resolve the crisis now and avoid this situation in the future. In the short term, with the current crisis we have, at the dire situation of food insecurity, we need to immediately save lives. What that implies is that we need to get through the next couple of months, we need to have a robust humanitarian response, you know, systems in place. And these are things, as you already know, uh, will include emergency feeding, cash voucher, and any related things that will help population in dire need uh, at this point. But I think the more important question is the is the long run question, the medium long run question. And this, I think, uh, will place at two level. One, I think, all over the years, I think we've been slightly failing in terms of developing a strategy for strengthening our, strengthening our food systems within East Africa. And I think in the medium long term, particularly African governments and global relief agencies should think about diversifying the food supply chains. So that I think in times of need, we will actually have uh, you know multiple fallback uh, plan. Uh, the second thing, uh, and I think as you already know, over the years we've always been addressing crisis. Uh, we have somehow failed to address the risks uh, associated with the drought. And I think in the long run, one of the strategies to move away from that and invest in what we call anticipatory action. Uh, in other cases, they call it early action. And I think 
The reason why we don't do this early action partly is a factor of planning, partly is a factor of resource allocation. So for us to move into that direction, we need to scale up predictable kind of multi-year funding for humanitarian and development programs so that we strengthen the resilience of communities facing drought. And I think the other is uh, you know, investing in the livelihood assets, basically livestock and food production uh, through input supplies, smart subsidies, uh, you know, e-vouchers, irrigation, and any other opportunities that would come along the drought cycle. Dr. Robert, um, particularly in reference to your work as lead on the, as head of the Jamil Observatory, how important in your work is, is data-driven innovation and information sharing in responding decisively? Better access to data has always been very important, uh, you know, in, in, in early warning and, and, and drought monitoring. And because essentially what it, what, it, what it implies is that if you have a reliable data, it will help you to prepare for slow onset of disaster. As I mentioned earlier, uh, drought just don't happen. I think it's, it's a compounding effect. It, it, it builds over months and months. So if you have data that shows that, then I think you can also match your action along you know, the, the, the drought building up. So basically, data is a very important thing because a tool for anticipating, for preparing for, and for mitigating the worst impact of drought. You recently released a report with Oxfam Save the Children and your organization, the Jamil Observatory. Um, what would you say are the headline asks for governments to stave off preventable famines as outlined in that report? From the report, it shows that government and international actors are still responding to the impact of drought instead of managing the risk ahead of the drought, or they are still struggling to take action at sufficient scale in response to the early warning uh, information. So I think with that understanding, and given that there are a few things which have changed, there are very good pilots that have worked, I think as highlighted in the report, but I think we need to take the pilot to a scale. And for us to do that, I think we need to push the report. Uh, one of the asks is how do we push you know, government uh, to move from the crisis to risk management? And one of the things in the report that was highlighted extensively as recommendation is a structured financing for anticipated reactions. And how do we increase you know, budgetary allocation? How do we create a flexible pool of fund that will help us to actualize some of the shelf project that is, you know, uh, uh, is provided along the, the drought circle, you know, from, you know, normal to alert up to the time when you get crisis and eventually to, 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 to recovery. So if we do it well, I think from the pilot, evidence shows that we will save substantially from the crisis investment um, and making sure that we put in uh, enough funding to actualize the shelf project. The second thing that is being pushed or I think identified by, by the report is the how do we integrate drought response within humanitarian development and climate action, uh, basically at the scale that required, is required to protect communities before a crisis unfold. Uh, so that's, that's a very important uh, aspect that came from there. And uh, the third is, uh, you know, support to locally led early warning, early action. And I think for this, the emphasis was placed on the need to work 
together to improve the integrated use of data and analysis of seasonal forecasts and projections. That was Dr. Roba, head of the Jamil Observatory in Kenya. Coming up, we talk to Dan Miller about regenerative agriculture. This is Farms Food Future, episode 35, with me, Brian Thompson, and guest presenter Bakari Kulabali in Dakar. Despite widespread interest in regenerative agriculture, no legal or regulatory definition of the term exists nor has a widely accepted definition emerged. It can broadly be seen as an alternative means of producing food that, its advocates claim, may have lower or even net positive environmental and social impacts. Many of us agree that regenerative agriculture is a great way to meet nutrition needs without robbing the planet of vital resources. But for small-scale farmers, it can be hard to find the cash to invest. Anyways, what is a company that provides regenerative farms and fisheries with the funds and resources needed to expand their operation. Dan Miller is the founder and CEO of the US-based group. His family have been farming for over a century in the Chesapeake Bay area outside of Washington, D.C. Hence his interest in sustainable farming first in this area of the U.S. Launched in 2016, Dan aimed to accelerate the growth of small-scale regenerative agriculture, and according to Dan, it's working. Stewart has provided over $8 million US dollars in business loans to fund 60-plus unique agricultural projects backed by more than 1,200 lenders. He says it's the beginning of what's possible through community-sourced lending. The company offers a novel solution to the financial disparity between large and small farms. Anyone can join in and help with as little as $100. I caught up with Dan to talk about the current needs and future of small farming and how it's happening across America, one small farm at a time. Dan told me where the name came from. So, yeah, Steward, so it's a, it's a platform to provide financing to regenerative farmers. Um, when I began this work, it was through a chef in the Washington, D.C. area where I'm from, who's a local sourcing pioneer. And through him, I began meeting farmers he was sourcing from. And when you meet these farmers, it's very clear that the thing that's most important to them is taking care of the land, their animals, the family, and their community. And so the term steward, you know, to me, had, had always been used, it's certainly used in the English language historically, about somebody who's taking care of something and thinking about it beyond themselves and beyond their immediate needs and, and for the future, for unknown generations and unknown lengths of time. And I, I found in, in conventional agriculture, it's such a short-term mentality. It's very extractive in terms of the inputs that are put in and the methods that are utilized. And I just felt that that the term steward and each of these farmers being a steward of the land and their community was was just a different perspective uh, in thinking about who they are. And I thought it framed really well the type types of people our platform is built to support, that they are stewards and that the people that are providing financing and also providing resources to these farms are stewards and providing the resources that these uh, producers need to be stewards. So I, I thought the term um, fit very well the ethos of of the type of work we're doing. Because like you said, there's a lot of different definitions, but but I think that one comes down to just the perspective and the longevity and the, the care for the land and people um, beyond immediate economic benefits. 
to, to qualify for in investment, to borrow, to get a loan, what, what sort of ideas do you want to see? On the farmer side, on the producer side, we, we like to see producers that have at least two, three years experience. So they've, they've already farmed a bit. Ideally, they've had their own operation for at least a year or two. So they've started to develop some markets and products. They don't have to be at any large scale, but they, they know what they can produce. They validated it, that it's a good product and they're selling it through various channels. And they're really trying to take that next step. They need more equipment. They need more labor. They need working capital. They need more land. And how can we really accelerate their growth by financing you know, them to get to the point where they have enough revenue to pay themselves a salary and they don't have to work multiple off-farm jobs and they actually have reasonable uh, scale that they can then provide, you know, supply restaurants and supply larger contracts. And we work with some farms who've had five, ten thousand dollars of revenue when we began. And now three years later they had $180,000 of revenue of just enormous growth. We're also working with more and more kind of mid-sized farms of a few hundred thousand dollars revenue where we help them get to a few million over time. So it's just finding producers that that are obsessive about what they're growing, obsessive about how they're growing it, would like to take that next step in 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 growing their business, but are, are starved for the resources to do it. And so we help put together the financing that makes sense for them. And then we also have a farmer on our team who helps with business planning and diligence and just putting together uh, a long-term plan for their business that we can fund step-by-step step to get them to where they hope to be. We know all too well at IFAD how small-scale farmers in developing countries get a very small percentage of the development finance pie. What you're saying is that small-scale farmers are also facing the same sorts of difficulties more broadly in accessing finance for regenerative, sustainable agriculture. So just let me ask, how, how successful have you been in raising those funds, is it getting easier? Is it how's it going? There's been enormous demand for people to fund. I mean, when we first launched the platform a few years ago, you know, raising a hundred thousand dollar loan could take a few months. Now that's raised through the platform in a matter of hours. Recently, loans have been selling out in minutes, just from an email to our user base. So there's there's so much demand. I think the reality is that the traditional ag market is financed by institutions, traditional banks you know, multilateral institutions that that have a certain methodology of how they do it and they only want to fund a certain type of agriculture or there's just lots of layers in getting the money. Through our platform, it's us as a platform, our user base, which is individuals, family offices, high net worth funders, you know, anybody who wants to support this type of producer. And so we can customize the funding just for that producer and tell their story and get people excited about who they are, why they're doing it and get them the capital quickly. So I view these types of small to mid-sized regenerative farmers. They're very dynamic enterprises. They're very entrepreneurial. There's so many things happening in the market with customers and products that they really need quick access to resources. Unfortunately, that that's not available. And that's that, you know, that's by design. The, the, the money's generally given to large commodity producers. And our goal is to flip that on its head, build a decentralized network of funders and farmers that can aggregate and pull their resources together and work outside of those traditional institutions that you know, for all, for all the talk of what they'd like to do, the reality is on the ground, the resources aren't getting to where they need to go. That was Dan Miller at Stewart, and you can find out more about their plans to expand into the developing country market by going to www.gosteward.com. Coming up, part three of our series on youth and agribusiness hubs in Africa. 
This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in Rome with Bakary Kulabali in Dakar. Next up, we're continuing the conversation from last month about youth agribusiness hubs. For those who don't remember, these hubs are helping young people get jobs in the sustainable agriculture sector. This time we are joined by two different experts. Samboza is a green jobs consultant with IFAT and Keith van der Rie previously led the Green Jobs Program at the International Labour Organization. They talked to us about the business and technical skills that are needed for these jobs and how the hubs are helping young people learn these skills. Keith is up first by explaining to us what exactly green jobs are. You know, we all need to deal with climate change and environmental degradation, in particular in economies and activities that are depending on natural resources, no? like fishing and forestry and agriculture, very much depending on good soils and, and weather, good, good weather, no droughts. So if we make uh, an economic activity more environmentally sustainable or greener, as we say, that's when we have green jobs, simply. It can uh, include jobs that uh, reduce the so-called greenhouse gas emissions, which heat up the atmosphere, uh, for example, in energy generation or metal industries, paper making, and so on. But it also is just simply doing better with nature, growing back trees in deforested areas, using agricultural waste for compost, or uh, constructing houses with renewable materials, for example, from rice uh, strolls after harvesting. And then also if somebody repairs a dam or, or uh, repairs uh, roads after floods, which are due to climate change, we call that adaptation to climate change, that is also a green job. And these are programs often invest in, in infrastructure where governments help uh, communities affected by those d- disasters and, and droughts. And now, how will the Youth Agribusiness Hub program create these green jobs and enterprises for the youth? The uh, well, agribusiness hubs will generate jobs for youth, you know, decent jobs for women and for men. That's that's the, that's the bottom line. Uh, and but by mobilizing enterprises and farms that apply these resource-efficient methods, or adopting climate-smart technologies um, like solar-powered drip irrigation systems, all those green enterprises will create green jobs. So if the agribusiness hubs generates uh, those linkages with those enterprises and trains job, trains the youth, sorry, to be prepared to start a green job, then they become green jobs uh, carriers. All right. Now, Sam, let's turn to you. What are the major challenges that young people hoping to get into sustainable agribusiness face? Thank you, Ian. Yeah, um, a number of uh, roadblocks stand in the way um, of youth getting into the green employment market. Um, one of the areas is the skills, the, the lack of skills. But those, this also brings in or ties in with the lack of access to training facilities, lack of trainers, training materials, and so on. We noticed that um, there is a serious shortage of uh, green skills. Um, particularly the technical skills in the different areas um, such as renewable energies, um, whether it's biogas, uh, whether it is solar systems, solar-powered irrigation, and and name it, Um, you find there is still a gap. Um, So that's an area to look into. And then, of course, the business skills, 
um, a lot of uh, green jobs come off as uh, self-employment opportunities where there is need to build the skill capacity in terms of business management, or the marketing, product development, branding, and, and so on. So these sets of skills need to be combined or integrated within a training program. And we realize that there is a, um, a gap in these uh, skill areas. So the skill challenge is, is, includes both uh, technical skills, but also business skills for those that may wish to go into uh, self-employment. Uh, but the other thing also is the, the lack of access to information. Um, information for organic products and services, um, training opportunities, you know, finance opportunities, green finance. These um, also remain major constraints um, in green job in the green jobs uh, search. And of course, the limited awareness about green jobs and and, and services, uh, rather green products and services within the market. Are also a barrier because those that make uh, green products um, may find it difficult to sell them to the market. And of course, finally, the unfavorable uh, policies um, that also, for example, affect access to, fi- to green finance. What sustainable results do we hope to see from the program? We expect a lot uh, from the program, uh, honestly. But the, the most important thing, I think, is is that, that that share of green jobs in total employment will have increased. That will be a great sustainable result. And then finally, um, we de- we hope and we expect that the agribusiness program will also become kind of a hub for green practices, for green tools, for sharing experiences and sharing knowledge widely so that more and more green jobs will be created. That was Giz and Sam, Green Jobs Experts. Turn in next month to hear from one of the Hub's donors at the Visa Foundation. Next up, the fifth part of our series on how to make the best of investment in small-scale farming communities, this time in the Solomon Island. You are listening to Farms Food Future. Now it's time to join IFAD Research and Impact Assessment Division in part 5 of our ongoing tour around development projects worldwide. They measure the impact this project have on incomes, productivity, women, and much, much more. In this podcast, we are turning our attention to IFAD's work in the Solomon Island. The Rural Development Programme Phase 2 ran from 2015 through till 2020 and aim to improve the livelihoods of nearly 70,000 people living in farming communities. I spoke with Tison Songserm Sawas. He told me that the communities living in these remote corners, he told me that the communities living in these remote corners of the Solomon Islands are dealing with market access challenges in addition to facing climate change impacts. The project has aimed to improve infrastructure and enable better market access. He told me about what the project has been focused on. I'll be talking mainly about the agribusiness partnerships uh, component, which IFAD, along with its development partners, including uh, the European Union, the World Bank, the Australian um, Foreign uh, Trade Department, uh, and along with the government, of course, uh, with the government of Solomon Islands and other partners, 
establish agribusiness partnerships and encourage small-scale producers to engage in productive partnerships with the agribusinesses supported by the project. With this component, the project provided technical and financial support in the form of uh, grants to agribusiness enterprises, which would allow them to invest in new production technologies, equipment, infrastructures, marketing practices, as well as uh, certification for marketing and uh, transportation. This, uh, basically, the project dealt with the uh, what we call the midstream of the value chain, which means we deal with activities related to harvesting, processing, packaging, transporting, and selling uh, the agricultural commodities. The study that uh, we would be talking about focuses mainly about um, two commodities in the value chain, uh, which are uh, cocoa and uh, coconut. So what would you say are, are the main lessons learned from, from, the, from the work that you guys have been doing? The first one is that, you know, the, the positive and significant results from this project on crop production were particularly driven by increases in the uh, value and uh, yield uh, for cocoa. We all, along with the household survey, we also conducted a, an agribusiness survey which showed that higher prices were paid uh, by agribusinesses to farmers. Uh, agribusinesses supported by, by the project also saw more cocoa and hired more workers, contribute, which also which, uh, helped, them, helped them contributing to the household level impacts. However, future projects should consider reinforcing such positive findings but also consider strengthening market access of traditional staple crops to ensure sustainability of food security impacts. Second, while we while the findings for coconut, so while the findings for co for cocoa were um, positive, the same cannot be said for coconut. We found that uh, coconut harvest and coconut um, value of production reduced in. Um, for the treatment group compared to the comparison group. Discussions with project staff show that due to lower prices of coconut, coconut production was no longer economically, economically viable, which led producers to move away from both harvesting and selling coconuts. This would mean that future projects could consider supporting related um, activities to coconut to ensure or other crops that to ensure their economic viability. And finally, the third lesson, uh, while the strict border controls were able to curb the spread of COVID-19 within the country, these controls had significant impacts on livelihoods of the people in the country. This is, these are in particular related to food and other essential commodities, remittances from migrant workers and tourism revenues. International trade disruptions also prevented additional income opportunities from greater crop sales due to reduced demand from export markets, especially for cocoa, since um, these were the crops uh, these were the crops aimed for exports. That means that in project settings that are highly dependent on international trade, 
there should be measures to support producers in the event of significant trade disruptions. Thanks to Tison Songsa Sawas telling us all about IFAD's work in the Solomon Islands. And in our next episode, Podcast 36, we'll be looking at the results from a selection of 24 projects active between 2019 to 2021. This will be pulled together to see how effective IFAD is overall in fulfilling its mission. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 35. Thanks to our fabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also our contributors that include Linda Odiambo in Nairobi and Alison Lecce in Rome and everyone else who's worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to these episodes of Farms Food Future. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org slash podcasts. Next month in Podcast 36, we'll be talking resilience and development throughout South Asia. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Bakari Kulibali and the team here at IFAT. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.